Hello, thank you so much for coming today. This is Family First 101 here at Foster Source. We are thrilled to have you here today with us. It's a pretty big treat, you guys, when we get to hear directly from the big bosses themselves. And that is the case today. We are thrilled to welcome John Steinmetz, the head of training for CDHS. Mary Griffin, the director of foster care for the state, will be joining us shortly. Uh, I knew as well, I've been reading and studying about Family First for a while now, well over a year. And I knew that once it came close to being implemented, this is something that foster parents would need to understand. This will affect your foster parenting journey. So we went straight to the source to ask for a training so that we can all understand this uh, very well. So John has agreed to spend part of his Saturday with us, and we are grateful. Thank you so much, John. Well, you're welcome. You know, are you ready for me to start now then? You betcha. Okay, let me see if I can. Um, Mary is gonna join me as soon as she possibly can. And uh, still trying to overcome the technology concerns there. Can everybody see the slides now? We sure can. Beautiful. And then let me do one other thing just to make sure I can see my trainer notes. There we go. Uh, so we're pretty excited. There's a few things, uh, maybe you, you caught it as Renee just mentioned. Um, Family First went into to effect yesterday. And there were some congratulatory emails that went back and forth amongst uh, some of the folks at the state who have been most involved. And maybe to introduce a little bit more about myself, I started with the state last year and was hired specifically to work on the Division of Child Welfare Learning and Development Team as a liaison for development of trainings related to Family First. And my first project actually was to create a Family First 101 slide set that could be consistent and shared around the state, and this is it. And then earlier this year, it got a makeover with some better pictures and graphics and some updates. And Mary and I have uh, added some things specific to foster care that I am sure hoping that her technology <laughs> allows her to join for the slides she's supposed to cover. If not, I'll, I'll probably skip those and have those uh, come back to those when she gets back on. Um, so I, I know in this kind of format, there's not the ability for folks to interact uh, with me directly, but questions that we wanted to, to lead off with to prompt you is what have you heard about Family First so far? Great question. Mind. Yeah, feel free to put those in the chat and we'll we'll read those aloud to John as as they come in. Um, I think for me, the main thing I've heard is that a bunch of the funding goes on the front end of the case now um, instead of after kids come into care. I think that's one of the main things I've heard. And the other thing is kids are stepping out of residential and down into foster homes. Yes. Yeah. So we'll see what things are true and we'll step through some of that. That's great. And I, I'd also ask our second question, which is what are you hoping to find out at this training as well? Great. Uh, someone says huge impact on how children will enter care uh, and on caseworkers trying to place. Agreed. Good. Wanted to give just a little bit more time if other people had other questions, because then what I'd like to do is I, I want to play a couple minutes of a video that I think helps create a maybe a, a good 
a metaphor or a new paradigm for the way that child welfare is, is being reformed. Awesome. Someone says changes in timeline slash deadlines for placements. And I think as foster parents, what, what I've heard as far as concerns are um, maybe children staying uh, in abuse and neglect longer before coming in. So requiring a higher level of foster parent when they do come in. That the kids are more intense with their, their needs? Correct. Got, got you. Yes, I've, I've heard some concerns like that as well. Good morning, Mary. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. We're so happy to have you again. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I think I'm cursed. Mary, did you want to add some things? They've just been interacting with the questions that we had about uh, what have they heard about Family First so far and what are they hoping to find out at this banquet? I, I'm sorry, I just popped in, so I've missed some of that. So saying things like a huge impact on how children will enter care and on caseworkers trying to place kiddos and um, changes in like possibly timelines or deadlines for placements. And then maybe the need, and I'm sure we'll be talking about a, like therapeutic homes, needs for a higher level of foster parent. Someone says family first decreases the number of kids entering foster care meaning too that let fewer and fewer need a foster care placement, especially with agencies or CPAs. It's good to know, right? What, what has been kind of circulating out there. So, yeah. 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 And hopefully we'll be able to, to help clear up some of the things that might be misconceptions as well. Well, and, and I think that our belief and hope, but our belief is that being able to invest in um, comprehensive and um, stronger program prevention programs, that that will reduce the uh, abuse and allow kids to be be or the the effects of the abuse and allow that child or youth to remain home. Um, and we also know that that's not going to be true in every case, but that's really sure. the crux of it all. Someone says, as far as something they're hoping to hear from you, um, does this all depend if the family reaches out and asks for help or are they reported as normal for schools, neighbors? Uh, mandatory reporting will still exist. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's the, it's the, the, and the families, yes, they can ask for help. They, they could ask for help now, but there's sometimes that stigma. Um, but absolutely, the reporting system has not changed at all. Correct. Super. I have some other questions coming in, but why don't we go ahead and move along for now? Because likely yeah. some of these will be answered as we go along. Okay, so let me set up the video as long as I can get to it. Also, if there were any of our links that you didn't catch, folks in the chat, just um, message the panel here and one, somebody from my team can send you a link for what service you're looking for. Just to set this up or set the table for this, uh, this is Jerry Milner, who was the acting human services uh, czar at the time when the bill was passed, talking about what the paradigm uh, shift for a family first is. And Jerry's on the federal level, is that correct? Correct, correct. He's no longer actually in that position uh, 
uh, the new administration is appointing somebody else. But the um, the like we said, the act went into effect yesterday. And here's the video. That in our country, we try to cure polio by buying more wheelchairs and crutches. As a Thank you and good afternoon. <clears throat> I want to begin by asking you to do two things with me uh, for the next few minutes, which are going to sound a little uncharacteristic coming from someone from the federal government. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I want you to use your imagination. Uh, second, uh, I want to ask you to think boldly about the issues that we're going to talk about now. So first, imagine this with me. Imagine that in our country, we try to cure polio by buying more wheelchairs and crutches, as opposed to buying more vaccines to keep the disease at bay in the first place. Where would we be? Imagine that we try to protect uh, automobile drivers and passengers by buying more ambulances to get them to the hospital faster, rather than buying more seatbelts, airbags, and other safety features. And because we always have to have a sports reference, if you're from the Southeastern Conference, you've got to have a, a sports reference. Imagine that we keep athletes on the field safe by buying more neck braces and uh, ice packs as opposed to buying more shoulder pads and football helmets. Where would we be? Now imagine this with me. Imagine that we protect our most vulnerable children in our country from child abuse and neglect by buying more foster care beds for them after they've been abused and neglected. Rather than investing in the capacity of their parents to keep them safe from harm in the first place. What would that look like if that were the case? I'll tell you. It would look like 437,000 children in foster care and going up. It would look like 4 million reports of child abuse and neglect every year, because that is the case. That's what we do in our country. Yes, child welfare is a very complex situation, and all the situations that we have to deal with in child welfare don't lend themselves to a seatbelt or a vaccine. But so often, we focus our efforts on the effects of child abuse and neglect rather than the causes, on the symptoms rather than the cure, on reacting after it's occurred, rather than proactively trying to prevent it from occurring uh, in the first place. Despite having a sincere desire <clears throat> in many uh, situations and the know-how to intervene sooner to support and strengthen uh, the capacity of families, oftentimes our funding, our programs, our policies, sometimes our very values get in the way of us doing that. If we're serious about looking at ways that we can strengthen the capacity of families in our country, we have to reimagine what we expect out of our child welfare system and what we're looking for in terms of the outcomes and what we're looking for in terms of the funding and what it can buy and what it may not buy for us. Attorney. All right, I know some of you had trouble hearing and there was a little bit of an echo there. So we are going to link that direct um, video in the chat so that everyone can watch it. So we'll find that. John, you can go ahead and keep teaching. And also, if you can come a little bit closer to your microphone, um, John, that would be awesome. 
Okay, is that better? Awesome. Please, judges, the entire Okay, so some background, historical background on this that may address some of the questions that have already been raised. I'm Jerry Milner, I'm the Associate Commissioner of the Children's Sorry, Theater. my technology is fighting me. Here we go. Um, prior to the Family First Prevention Services Act, as you can see and, and may be aware, um, maybe not so much for folks here in Colorado, but in many states, the, um, placements have been one of the primary interventions to deal with child abuse and neglect incidents. And some of the things that we're seeing now that are changing with uh, Family First is that the, the funding uh, that used to be placement oriented is no longer, uh, is gonna be focused on prevention services as you were alluding to in some of your questions. And for the first time, uh, the funding is intended for prevention services to keep families together as a federal priority. Some of the things that are connected with the Family First Prevention Services Act, some of the details that you may wanna know, it was signed in February, 2018, and the requirement for full implementation went into effect yesterday, as we just talked about. And uh, for just an interesting update from Colorado's perspective, the uh, Colorado Prevention Plan the second and final revision of it was submitted Thursday at 5.10 p.m., uh, which was the last day of September. So the, uh, they were impressed with our initial plan, uh, prevention plan for the state of Colorado, but they wanted some further information on the programs we were intending to use. And that, that went in uh, Thursday, right after the close of business. Um, it also incorporates the first major modernization and overhaul of child welfare in the last three decades. So when you think about that, uh, this is going to be for uh, all states, but especially those who have not been more active, this is going to be a, a big shift in the way that child welfare is approached. And part of it's not that there's going to be a ton of new funding but it reallocates where that funding was spent, just like Jerry Milner was alluding to in the way that he was giving that metaphor. So it's looking at services that are evidence-based and trauma-informed, which means that they're aware of the trauma that can occur for youth and families. And it's looking to keep them safely together. And that's a key word on this slide is we're not talking about families that are maintained when there's a high risk situation that's still occurring. We're talking about making sure that we can apply prevention services that help them stay together, but ensure the safety of all as well. And the funding is not gonna be dependent on family income either, which is a big shift. Some of the things that it seeks to improve for well-being of, of children who, um, and who are placed out of the home is making sure that they're in the least restrictive and most family-like setting possible. So this is where you all as foster homes uh, often provide that same family-like setting for them. And it's also wanting to ensure that a comprehensive assessment occurs to determine what is the most appropriate level of care based on the child or use needs. And we'll talk about the independent assessment process that's gonna be utilized 
Uh, that's used and implemented when we're looking at qualified residential treatment programs. And we'll elaborate on that. And again, the big goal, and here's another quote from Jerry Milner, is wanting to keep families healthy, together, and strong. And this is where the video builds on this quote that we included here, is re-envisioning the whole way we approach child welfare in the United States that strengthens uh, the family and breaks those harmful cycles rather than waiting until they're hurt to respond. Um, so implementation of the act, here's some of the core values that Colorado had in mind when they were developing their plan. Um, you can see here, they wanted to make sure that the family and youth voices are the loudest heard and considered and respected. And so for some, that's gonna be a shift to make sure that the family and youth are an active voice in the process of what services that they receive and what they need. It's also looking at a systemic and community engaged integrated approach. So meaning here that when we're considering services, we're looking at all of the systems that are currently involved in the youth of, uh, life of the youth and family and getting them to work and collaborate together as they identify what are the specific clinical needs that the youth or family may need. And then in turn, there's also that same shared accountability since everybody's involved, they're also gonna share accountability and responsibility to, to maintain that integrated uh, community approach so that the youth and family feel support surrounding them uh, and trying to help press for them to be successful. We're also looking for services that there's scientific evidence that yeah, prov provides proof that this is a beneficial service and is gonna be effective and useful for the family. And we also wanna enhance and embrace their natural supports. Uh, so a little bit of history here. Uh, Colorado, when they started going about building their plan and determining how we're gonna uh, implement all that Family First requires from the federal level, they developed this structure that you see here. Human Services led this, but developed a Family First implementation team. And they've been meeting uh, since I believe 2018 up until this month. And actually the last meeting for the, for the Family First uh, Prevention Services Act implementation team is gonna be on October 15th, largely a celebration of what we've been able to accomplish. And you can see here were some sub work groups that were part of that process the Native American Alaskan Native Work Group, the assessment work group, which is gonna to continue to meet because they're, they're still working through what this assessment process is gonna look like as it continues to be implemented. The service continuing work group, which is also gonna to continue to develop the prevention services continuum. Uh, the QRTP work group has finished their work. The juvenile justice work group is gonna to continue to work because there's things to be integrated with um, juvenile justice involved youth, and then the candidacy work group, which has completed their work. All of them contributed to the work plan that you see in the center line. And then there were also additional filter groups who did some research and provided feedback and input to advise the development of this process. And some of that is still active. The con constituents work group, that's an active um, a voice that is continuing to be solicited as they develop the prevention continuum. 
legislation, fiscal uh, policy still comes up as, as needed, but the others, it, and that would be true whenever there's additional information, any of these can be reactivated to help provide further in, input. Um, the IT, the trails, which tracks uh, some of the, the, how the family is receiving services within the system is also still active in training like right now is still active in the communication work group. Um, Colorado worked from the federal definition of candidacy, but this is where they were landing with their desire to uh, define their own candidacy. And each state has the latitude to be able to define candidacy uh, within the bounds of what the federal government has provided, but they can then adapt it to their specific state needs. What Colorado said here is they wanted to leave the definition of who would be candidates eligible for the prevention services fairly um, non-specific, so that it would be broadly and generally applied, uh, have flexibility to apply to a wider uh, group of youth and families. So they want all kids who need services to be able to have the access and that they should be served in the family's home or in a relative's home whenever it's possible. They want it to enable families to have what they need to keep their family safe and together and to make sure that those uh, systems, that services are available without requiring the family or the youth to necessarily have to have an active and open child welfare case. And so back to one of the questions I saw raised, yes, there, there will be access without them, a family can seek and pursue services um, under Family First without having to become an active child welfare. Even before there's a case. Okay. Uh, can I toss another question here? Sure. Um, someone says, so most of the time, and this is from the foster parents perspective, right? So once the kids have come into care, most of the time we struggle with programs that help the children. We sit on waiting lists to see if we ever get accepted for therapy, for specific evaluations, for mentors. What programs are they going to invest in to create more access to these programs for the kids? Not even all schools know how to handle a 504 or an IEP. I think the the fear here is, John, if, if so much of this funding is now shifted to before kids even come into care, we feel like we're already struggling once they're in care. So what's going to happen to services for once they're in care? Yeah, and we'll develop a, a bit of this in further slides, but okay. I, uh, the prevention continuum, uh, this Colorado is being very ambitious, I think maybe, maybe the best word, with making sure that we're developing really developing the prevention services side of things. Is, and it wouldn't just apply to families before they have contact with child welfare, but uh, also during, and that actually should enhance the resources uh, that are, would be developed and available for foster families as well. And one of the things I, I would like to, to clarify from the video, I know Jerry Milner mentioned about uh, fund, increased funding for foster care beds. Uh, but he's also the family first gives very specific and we'll drill down in some further slides about qualified residential treatment programs. The need for foster families is, I think, only going to increase. And the, the work that you do is so important and vital that that's why I'm so glad to be here on a Saturday talking with you about this and to affirm what you're doing 
um, Colorado wants through this definition to support you better with the work that you're doing with youth and family. Okay. Any other questions before we move on? Not right now. Okay. Um, so Colorado then created their own final definition. And that's what you see here. They say for the purposes of Title IV-E prevention services, a child's a candidate for foster care when they're at serious risk of entering or re-entering the foster care, re-entering foster care, and who is able to be uh, remain safely in the home with the provision of a few things we wanted, I wanna kind of highlight here, mental health, oops, sorry, I went ahead of the slide, substance use disorder, in-home parenting services for the child, and this can also apply for in-home parenting services for the parent or kin caregiver, and foster youth who are pregnant or, or parenting are also candidates. Um, and then further defining that, they may be at serious risk uh, based on their own circumstances and characteristics of the family as a whole, or circumstances and characteristics of individual parents or children. So this is again, fairly general, uh, so that it can be applied to what are the risks that we're seeing that would um, uh, be eligible for this. And some of the things that we've identified as things such as substance use of the youth or caregiver, mental illness or mental health needs that haven't been addressed is, is a better way to, to describe these lack of parenting skills, maybe limited capacity or willingness to function in the parenting role, uh, parents' inability or need for additional support, or to address uh, serious needs of the child related to the use uh, behavior or physical or intellectual disability of the child or youth or the parent, and parental put, uh, protective capacity that's being compromised by basic need challenges, things such as homelessness, uh, food insecurity, et cetera, developmental delays, and that could apply to either the child or to the parent or caregiver. And then looking at reunification and adoption or guardianship arrangements that are at risk of, of disruption. So it's, it's a fairly broad definition that provides eligibility um, candidacy for, for a, a wide group. Here's a question that came in, John. Um, sure. If the need for foster families is so great, why does it take so long to get a single referral from my agency? And I, I'm maybe Mary wants to jump in on this too. I would say, first, a county will always place with their own families first before they reach out to a CPA. Um, and it could be that the kiddos that are coming in are not within your what you've set as ages you'd like, et cetera. Um, maybe Mary can, or you, John, can add to that a little bit. But I'm thinking for the most part, it's because a, um, counties place with their own families first. Yeah, I think um, actually I'd like Mary to. I, yeah, I can jump in on that. Thank you, Mary. And um, in answer to your, your question, counties prefer to use their own homes first um, generally. And that base, because their homes are generally within in the within the county, they're not long distances, and and by federal um, statute or federal law, um, we're required to place kids as close in as close proximity to parents as possible. However, I'm I I think that the, there are uh, 
the CPA, the CPAs have um, half, half of the children in foster care. And so I don't know what this particular foster parents, um, who, who the agency is, um, but I think it would be really important to have a discussion with them about why you aren't getting referrals and and Renee made an excellent point you know when when you're going to be you're going to be certified and they ask you you know what are the characteristics of the kids that you want to care for what is the age group how many do you think it, you know as long as there's the space so it may may have to do with that particular um, yeah, yeah. With, with that or it could be um to, to Renee's point, maybe it's not in a location that's uh, where you are or, or the, the, you know, the child yeah. being placed is in a different location. Yeah, we're lucky to have Sam from Boulder County um, on today. And she said, speaking for Boulder County, we always place with our families first. CPAs are only used for higher level placements when absolutely necessary. Thank you, Sam. Ahead, what what oh, I was, Renee, I would just say one thing that in um, we have on any given day about um, 2,400 to 2,500 foster homes, and they're pretty evenly divided half our county and half our child placement agency. Okay. So, um, you know, there's only a certain volume. Um, of, of county homes. And we have a lot of rural counties. And I don't know if we have folks on here that live yeah. in rural areas that have that have next to no resources um, in terms of having uh, available foster homes in their area. Yeah. Here's a follow up question. Maybe I misunderstood, but I thought John said the number of foster families needed will increase. If the purpose is to keep kids in their families first and doing more work towards that, why would the need increase? What I'm referring to there is they're looking at um, placements in higher levels of care reducing and that there, um, there will, will be use like they're thinking. And that's actually a good segue into this slide because you see in this slide, we're talking about the clarification of kin. Uh, they want to be more inclusive of, uh, and it's building on the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's what ICWA stands for in that second paragraph. But they want to make greater use of, of kinship relationships because these are the long-term relationships that are most likely to be supportive uh, for the child and the, the longest lasting ones. Um, but in the, in the instances where there may not be that kinship a caregiver available, that's where low mid-range intensity foster homes are, are likely to be more used. Does that make okay. sense? Okay, it does. And there's another great question. First, what is the definition of close proximity? And secondly, if there is no kin in close proximity, would they look at relatives out of state um, first before placing with a foster family? I can speak to they are going to be looking at the extended families and doing more diligent searches. And that's been a state initiative anyway, uh, to make sure that uh, things such as making sure they know who the biological father is and that they've outreached that side of the family as well. As you see here too, in this kinship definition, if you look in the mid part of it, it also can define kin as those people having a family-like relationship with the child. 
So maybe they have somebody who's a close neighbor, has functioned essentially as an aunt or uncle. Those folks can also be considered uh, as a kinship relationship to the caregiver or family and may be considered as well. And, and they can also be certified. Um, okay. too. And your question about um, close proximity, during the child and family service reviews, that federal review that happens um, periodically in Colorado of, of our child welfare system, the um, what what has been, I guess, accepted is a drive up to um, 60, 60 minutes. And so if you're living in the metro area, quite frankly, you could go from certain parts of Aurora to Jefferson, and it could take you just about that amount of time. So, it, um, so it's, it's more the minutes than the miles. And so, uh, and obviously as there's, um, to, to John's point with the family search and engagement and trying to find folks that are significant, significant to this child and trying to make sure they're including the, the paternal side of the family, um, it, it, it's, it's really important that the, the, the visitation and all that be as close to the family as possible because once you start losing that relationship because they live too far away, and transportation is a different is a is an issue. Um, you know that progress that child is making in care is going to decrease, and they they start losing connections with their family, and we don't want that to happen. So potentially, Mary, would a child be placed in a in a foster home and then moved once a kin placement is found, either in or out of state? Yes, that yes, that can happen. Um, usually, with out of state, though. Um, it, it takes a while. And so generally what's going to happen is if there's a, let's, let's say there's a dependency and neglect petition and a child or youth is removed, they, you know, they want to obviously um, give the parents as much opportunity to uh, uh, remediate whatever those issues were that brought that child into care. And so in the process, you know, as, as the case prolongs, then they will be, um, they will have identified these, these folks through family search and engagement. And that's when they would be putting in the request for a home study with that relative in, in another state. But it isn't, um, they're, they're not going to send a child out of state very, really early in the, in the case, because again, you've got to give that the family an opportunity, the parents. Okay, okay. We've got a couple more questions, but I think maybe we should go forward a bit. These are questions regarding additional services that may be available when higher level kids are coming into care. So we'll hold those for now, John. Yeah, and we're gonna elaborate on a few more things related to kin here. One of the things that you'll notice, like Mary just said, reunification is huge. And what the data has shown, and this is why they went in this direction anyway, is often a kid who's been in the child welfare system and emancipates as a teen, when, when they get to the point where they have uh, um, reach the age of adulthood and can choose to do what they choose, often they do go back to their biological family, the same family that they may have been removed from before. So recognizing that, it, that's been part of the consideration. How do we better support the families and avoid placements if possible um, in, on the preventive side of things? 
The other thing that the data has been very clear on as well is that one of the most damaging uh, things that they've noted is that the siblings not being able to maintain contact, even though their, their parents or caregivers may have done something to put them at risk, they've felt punished by the fact that they've been separated from their siblings. And so there's a strong emphasis on how do we maintain those relationships in whatever setting that we wind up uh, having to, to create for the youth and family that's gonna best meet their needs at the time. So we'll say more of that as we go, go on. Okay. Um, let me move to the next slide. Uh, juvenile justice candidates. Um, so I, I guess a better way to reframe this is juvenile justice involved youth are also candidates under Family First. And it includes, includes any of the levels you see here. Um, maybe the youth is, has had a charge, but has, is in pretrial services or diversion or probation. Uh, all of those still are eligible for the Family First Services. Crossover youth, uh, we're careful with the way we define this term, but these are youth who are uh, both involved with child welfare, but also have delinquency issues where there's involvement with the juvenile justice system. They're eligible as well. And then also youth who are uh, committed to the Division of Youth, uh, youth Services, which is more the detention spectrum and beyond. Uh, those youth are gonna be eligible in candidates for uh, Family First Prevention Services. Uh, they'll have be eligible on the front end for the assessment to make sure that the clinical needs are identified that, that need to be treated for them. Once they get committed to the Division of Youth Services, uh, you, they take responsibility and, and custody for the child while they're in DYS. And then on the back end, when they're ready to re-enter the community, they become candidates for Family First again to make sure that they're assessed for what would best serve their needs with re-entry to the community or reunification with family. Um, some of the things we'll cover with prevention services, Again, this is all about keeping families together. So some of the new services that you'll see are the mental health services. And again, this is both for the child, but it can also be for the parent and kin caregivers, as well as substance abuse prevention. So if, if the thing that was putting the, the youth at risk happened to be the parent substance use, they, the caregiver would be eligible to uh, accept uh, substance abuse prevention services. And the same would be true even if they identified somebody, a kinship caregiver who had substance abuse issues it, that needed to be treated in order for them to be effectively able to be a caregiver, they would be eligible as well. In-home parenting skills, again, can be to support the youth, but also for the parent or kin caregivers. And then placement, um, there's even special distinction for uh, children who are, are able to go with a parent to a licensed residential family-based substance abuse treatment facility. Um, we have limited availability of some of those, but they, they do exist. And now there's funding that would pay for that, as well as kinship navigator services. So if you had a kinship provider like Mary was talking about who... Um, went through the certification process, but they're new to all of the services and supports that they need in order to provide for the child's needs. 
a kinship navigator program is intended to help uh, provide someone to guide them through that process of, of getting those services and how to access those. And I'm excited because Colorado is on the kind of on the innovative end with their own kinship navigator program that's being developed. It's developed and it's being tested actually, and is looking to be an application to be added to the clearinghouse, which is what we'll move into next. John, will these preventative services be mandatory for identified families? And aren't we already providing services in the in these families or are we only starting these services now after the child is taken into care? There are some uh, um, some services already currently available and some counties who have, have reached out to this, but it's saying that Family First is providing greater allocation and, and specific funding for those things. And that's going to be part of what the uh, prevention continuum work group is looking to develop. Mary, will they be? Will that be mandatory? Will the? Could you restate that? Would will the, the services be mandatory? Yeah, for the identified families that are getting prevention services in an attempt not to pull. Well, it, I guess it, it it would be in. It depends. Is so so for example, if the if the family is asking for assistance on their own in a voluntary manner then they, they wouldn't be mandatory. Um, if it's part of a, maybe even if a county has um, super, uh, supervision uh, over a home, not custody, but supervision of a home, um, that, would be, that would be awarded by the court. So in those situations, they could be, they could be mandatory. Okay, lots of questions coming in. I don't know if we should try to answer a few of these. Um, Renee, can I just jump in too? Because sure. I want to I make sure that uh, folks really understand the magnitude of the funding opportunity. So the, the funding that John is talking about, it's Title 40 of the Social Security Act. And to this, you know, up to now, we've only, those funds may only be, they could only be used for foster care, adoption, and, uh, and guardianship assistance programs. And so what? So now what they're saying is, there, it's not that there's gonna be more money, but what they're saying is now you can, you can develop your prevention services and draw down this funding. And so the funding, the state gets funded at 50%. And so that's why there's this opportunity for an increase in the services that are gonna be provided. I think what most of you are probably familiar with is something that we call core services, which is used for prevention um, reasons. Core services is a totally state funded program. The legislature awards that. So there's a limitation. So we still will have core services and we'll have the opportunity to be able to try and keep families together, um, you know, drawing down these federal funds. So on the, on the prevention side, it'll be additional funding for that, but it's gotcha. overall in the state, it won't be. Okay. So those four E funds were used to just be available after in care. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay, yes. that makes sense. Regarding the mandatory, if it would be mandatory, the follow-up question was, so it would follow the family assessment response track, essentially? Is that accurate, Mary? I'm not sure what that is. Oh, I think, um, so there is a, 
well, I want to make sure that we're not we're not mixing this with um, when an, when an assessment when there's an allegation and an assessment being done. Um, with when they're going to if if they agree to a prevention plan, there has to actually be a plan. It's time limited, I believe. Isn't it a year, John, that they can have the the uh, prevention plan? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so it is time limited. Um, let me toss a couple more if you guys don't mind. How is the need for increased mental health services for youth in Colorado being addressed? Isn't there a lawsuit going on against Medicaid as they are not providing mental health services and kids are just having to go to the emergency room to address their mental health needs? That's a complex um, answer because there are different funds and avenues for treating mental health. I think if you don't mind, what I'd like to do um, is talk about, get us to the independent assessment, because I think where youth are at risk of being removed from the home and placed in higher intensity treatment, um, that's where the independent assessment is gonna come into play. Gotcha. And there's, and there's also um, separate treatment, that's uh, psychiatric residential treatment facilities, PRTFs, that are still gonna be available to, that are more mental health specific than behavioral. Um, but that's a, an entirely different um, conversation. That's a high intensity level. Okay. Someone says, so if overall funding isn't increasing, where do we expect cuts to pay for the new upfront services? Or is it the hope that the early intervention would reduce the need for later services? I'm guessing that's the, the case, right? We're hoping that pouring this funding in on the front end of the case will reduce the need for services because we're trying to prevent coming into care at all. Right. And well, and so just to, to clarify, we we aren't necessarily we aren't capped with 4E funding. So so it, if a child goes into care or a child is going to have a prevention plan and this is what it's costing for the service, then the state can bill and be reimbursed 50% of that. And so um, because we don't have a cap, it's we've always been able to uh, to live kind of with our our 4E funding because and we're also using state funding with this too, so it's not just federal funding. Yeah, it's okay. a dollar for dollar match, and that actually is in some of the next few slides. If you don't, okay, let's that. yeah, let's go ahead a little bit. But before I skip on from this one, two important things: one trauma-informed, so services are going to have to be provided under a trauma-informed organizational structure and treatment framework, which means they have to understand what trauma uh, does for to youth and families and even how sometimes coming into the system can expose them to trauma. And then secondly, evidence-based services. Um, this is one, services that we know are proven to be effective. And there's levels to this. So what the federal clearinghouse is establishing is three separate levels. The first is promising practice. Uh, and what this means is a, a practice that they think is gonna provide a service that would be beneficial to families. It has to have had at least one study uh, and it has to have a quality design and a comparison to a placebo group. And this is the level, like I was mentioning, our, our uh, kinship navigator program that's been developed in 
Colorado is would fit into this category as they make applications for this. The supported practice, this is the second evidence level. And this is where they've had at least one study that's been independently reviewed, well-designed and executed, um, random controlled trial or quasi-experimental uh, trial. It has to be something that's actually been tried in a usual care setting, which means it's not just based out of a university setting, but it's in a real, real world envir environment. And that the benefit of that service has, has the evidence of that benefit has been sustained for at least six months post-treatment. And then the last uh, category, but actually the highest level of evidence base is the well-supported. And these are, these are the ones that become known as evidence-based practices. Uh, they have to have had at least two independent studies uh, with same everything that was applicable in the supported practice, but has to be rigorous, random controlled trials or quasi-experimental design, usual care setting, and the benefits have to be noted to uh, still be present at least one year post-treatment. So that's the highest level of, of evidence-based practices. Some things that you may have heard of, uh, uh, functional family therapy, multi-systemic therapy, um, uh, parent-child interactional therapy. These are some that are fit into that category. And there's a clearinghouse, which I think is in the links. Um, if they're not, we'll, we'll make sure that we add them. But there's a federal clearinghouse where you, where you can check out which practices are already approved and present within the federal clearinghouse, and you can sort them on them as well by uh, whether they're a promising practice, supported practice, or well-supported practice. With this, um, there's the links that I was just mentioning. Um, and the states are required to have a five-year prevention plan to show how they're going to develop their own prevention services in their Colorado plan um, to show these the same structure of the promising, supported, and well-supported. And there's a, this is the plan that I was talking about that they just submitted this past Thursday. It also shows what the rigorous evaluation plan is to make sure that these services actually do um, provide benefit to youth and families as anticipated. Uh, John, can I jump in just a second? Sure, go. Sure, and so I just want folks to, to uh, um, understand that um, the state didn't just decide, I mean, didn't wait to the bitter end. As you can see from the slides that John has done, um, folks have been working on this since, um, well, actually, I think we started talking about it in 2017, and that's when some of this was happening. Um, so that the and to to clarify for you the uh, federal government and, and this is this isn't a, a good thing they they get very prescri prescriptive and they want to know they want to totally understand what a plan is so the you know the it, the, I, the fact that we that there was only two it was submitted twice is pretty amazing um, but it again it's not that it was a last minute plan there it's been it, it's been in process for a long long time oh sure yeah well and lots of different stakeholder groups participating and yeah awesome yeah and in the in that plan what they 
um, what's impressive about it is uh, it was broadly accepted. What they wanted was more specifics on the specific uh, prevention services. So there's a huge appendix that was just created and attached to the prevention plan to explain each of the services, which actually fleshes out exactly what we're saying in these slides. What's your monitoring plan for fidelity to make sure that all these prevention services actually produce the results for youth and families that you're expecting? What's going to be your continuous quality improvement uh, plan for doing this? How are you going to do that both local and state level, because some services, the county will be part of the administration as one of the stakeholders and also the state. Um, and, and that also pulls in things such as training, which you see in this, uh, it's not really a bullet point, but second sentence here, making sure that uh, folks are adequately trained for the prevention services that they're providing. So it, it's pretty ambitious. And like Mary is saying, too, I would actually say that Colorado has been thinking with a prevention focus long before 2017, actually, um, and has been implementing certain things that are very aligned with what we're now required to do with Family First. Uh, last point on this slide, every five years, the plan has to be updated, but I anticipate it's actually gonna have amendments more frequent than that as we add services. Uh, so that's an important piece of this is if there's a, a service that is not available in your specific county or region, but should be, that's something that can be part of discussions and development. And then as services are added uh, or new promising practices emerge and wanna be, we want to add them into, and they have them make application be added to the, um, the clearinghouse and to the Colorado plan, the plan would be updated accordingly. Okay. Mary, if, if children, someone says, if children remain in home longer, potentially experiencing additional trauma and entering the system then with higher needs, will that impact the ongoing training foster parents need and or receive to maintain their certification? Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to talk about therapeutic and treatment foster care um, oh, in a super. bit, and, and maybe Great. that's a good place to address that. Great, thank you. Okay, um, hopefully this, this is a, a diagram that we like including. Um, you see on the far left end of the spectrum, what um, this is when, this would be where the end of the spectrum where prevention services would be involved. Down at the tertiary end, this is where we're talking about youth, uh, family or youth, where there's been placement, separation, and the, the youth is in some intensive level of, of care, some of the residential facilities that we would have. What we're seeing and what, uh, and what Family First is aiming for is trying to keep growing out this um, going upstream is often the term that they use and growing the availability of services down in this primary and lower intervention level that may be uh, prophylactically applied to address and meet a need before it becomes intense enough that it would require separation or placement. And that's where the expansion of the prevention services continuum is gonna, you're gonna see some significant growth and development there over the next few years. Um, on those intensity of services too, 
um, over time, um, we talked about the well-supported practices. Um, Family First is being pretty lenient with how rigorous they are with requiring uh, well-supported services with the recognition that some services as they are provided are gonna continue to build their evidence base and their efficacy showing that they're beneficial for longer periods of time post-treatment. Um, over time, well-supported uh, practices is gonna be the, the intensity level that the federal government is looking to, to get, apply the 50% match to. And I'll talk about some, some of that rollout in one of the next coming slides. Um, so creating this, uh, kind of, Comprehensive continuum, um, what we're trying to help folks think in terms of uh, counties, like, like Mary said, are still gonna be able to use other funding sources. Not every service that a child or family needs is gonna be already in that clearinghouse on the approved services. So counties can still uh, use their discretionary funding to pay for services that are not in the clearinghouse. And that's expected and anticipated. The point is though, that we're wanting to identify, continue to identify gaps as we go and start building out those services. And I'm always encouraging folks to th uh, think of services that already exist in your community, if they are beneficial and whether they should maybe make application to be added to that clearinghouse. And there's a link that's available on the Family First site to be able to do that. And if there's not services that don't currently exist, is this a time to start thinking about providers you respect and maybe asking them to consider developing a service that would be locally available? Um, this is where I was talking about that progressive um, uh, accountability on what level of services they will fund. So in fiscal year 2020 and 2021, uh, the Fed said that the states are not required to meet the 50% well-supported expenditures requirement. By 2023, they're expecting that at least 50% of Colorado spending must be for services that meet the supported or well-supported, so the better or best uh, level of evidence-based services. And then in fiscal year 2024 and beyond, uh, states must meet the 50, at least 50% of their expenditure for services must be in that well-supported expenditures requirement category. So there's increasing con um, accountability for that in order to get the, the, the broadest amount of uh, drawdown matching funds. But when they do that, it's a dollar for dollar match. So a dollar from the state is matched by a dollar from the federal government. And that's some of where this additional funding is coming from. It's a phasing in process. Um, there are transition funds that have been available. And so for the states have had opportunity to run that program themselves. And Yamiko Doherty is, is the one who's um, been working to get transition funds uh, um, agencies or services can can make application, counties can submit their plans for services they'd like to fall, uh, gets, receive some of that transition funding. And there's a link that's available in the websites 
that we'll be sharing for you to be able to pursue that if that's something that you would be aware of. And that leads us to placement services. And I think, is this where your slides begin, Mary? Yes. So you asked me to put these. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I was, as John was talking, um, and, and we were talking about how the length of time it's taken, um, it, the behind the scenes work is like amazing. The child welfare is like, uh, has kind of been almost, uh, well, it has been reimagined, but it's it's just been completely revamped. Um, when you think about the the uh, all the the things that John is talking about, and so yes, yesterday, October first, um, all states had to be participating or had to be be implementing the all the requirements um, from Family First. And so, as John was talking, I was thinking about. You know, if any of you been to a Rockies game when, where there's a rain out and, and people come out with that, that sheet and they're running down the field with that sheet? Well, that's kind of what this is, is that the, um, it's not all done. It's all going to be implemented and rolled out, over, you know, along the way. But the, the, major, the major hurdles, uh, the things that need to be done have been accomplished. So, so please be patient. Um, it, it takes a while, as you know, for things to, for you to really see the change. Um, you're, you're not going to see it tomorrow, but the sun did come up today. I was happy about that. Um, and so just, uh, you know, we just want your patience, but also with what, and, and what John said too, is if there's something that you're seeing that, that seems to be working well, um, you know, for, for the kids you're serving, you know, by all means, um, raise that with your, the, the counties and, the, and if you're with the child placement agency and because it, it, it may be something that a practice that, that needs to be in the clearinghouse. But so we're going to talk about your role. And, um, and, and yes, we are going to need more foster homes. I, when I gave you that number earlier, that I, I'm, I'm pleased because it's gone up about 200. So like on any given day, right? We have 25, 24 to 2,500 families. And that's gone up for years. It stayed at about 21 to 22. And we are going to need more. Um, not everyone who has a prevention plan is necessarily going to benefit from it, um, you know, and if they don't, again, because it's time limited, um, folks need to look at, at alternatives, but our hope is that, yes, we, I mean, we, we want, we want families that, that are having, having um, issues and worries, uh, we want to help them at the front end, if possible. However, we all know that, that um, there's always going to be a need for foster care, and one of the things that we have done, um, and I, I, I can't speak for other states, is that perhaps we have leaned on residential care. Um, don't have a foster home, so, so we're gonna put them in some kind of congregate care. And congregate care isn't, isn't good, necessarily good for kids for um, the longer or the bigger picture. So the, um, what I do wanna say, and um, Jerry Milner uh, had, but he, he 
spoke to us uh, at a different time and, and was taught, you know, the federal government, the Congress, um, Health and Human Services, AC, the Administration for Children and Families, absolutely value foster parents. They value what you bring to kids. You have, you know, you're in a, a family-like setting. Kids don't do so well when they're raised in a non-family-like setting. They've got to be able to see how things operate to be part of a part of the community, part of the family. So we will still and always need foster homes. We are going to need more foster homes to help. So to for those kids that are not going to qualify for residential, and John's going to talk about that. If they need placement we need to be able to have folks that are ready to serve them and, and prepared. So what, what you see in front of you is that when, when the family first legislation came out, Congress actually defined what a foster, what a foster home is and defined the, the, the maximum that could be in a foster home. And I'm, and I'm not gonna read all these to you, but this is what sets you apart from group care or congregate care. If you look at that second bullet, a child or youth in foster care has been placed in the care of an individual who resides with the child or youth and who's been certified. So that's where you see the value of living in a family. And this isn't to say that sometimes kids don't need, maybe they do need residential, but residential is intended to be even less temporary than foster care. And so, um, and, and you can see in there in the, the fourth, yeah, the fourth bullet where it talks about it, there you can have up to six, but the, uh, in, in foster homes, but that, and that's a federal, um, recommendation or not recommendation they're just saying you can have it up to that amount they allow of course the the states to um, decide how many kids can be in care um, some states don't allow that remember we did have ours used to be four um, next slide Is it advancing? No, no. Mm -hmm. But we want them to see that that the fe uh, federal government really does recognize their importance. While we're waiting, Mary, I'll read this comment, which I think is a good one. Someone says, I'm on both ends of this stick. I'm a foster parent that has had children in my home for close to four years. And then they went to a relative out of state. And I'm a relative that may have children coming to me from out of state that are in the system in that state. I understand both sides and have lived both sides. Wow. Yes. Yes, you have. Um, and you know what? And, and you're probably a person that we would love to hear your story. Agreed. Uh, so um, I, I, that's pretty amazed, amazing. So you can, can and, and I understand some of the, the question earlier about kids leaving and uh, leaving the state and going with other relatives and some of the, the worries that that may go with that. Um, and, and it sounds like, like you said, you've been on both sides of the fence with that, that you have been the relative and, um, and you have had kids leave to go with relatives. So it, well, it, it is. Yeah. 
And a lot of the questions that come in on that, Mary, this will clear up actually quite a few questions, is that concern about not only moving several times, but moving several times after a significant amount of time, a significant um, attachment to the foster parent, um, kind of that fear as far as, is that really what's best for the kids to yank them from a secure attachment? Well, I guess um, foster care isn't intended to be four years. Um, and that's unfortunate that's that's happened. The intent is temporary care. And until, uh, you know, until that child can be reunified or achieve permanency and our moves um, good. Um, well, a move res from residential to foster home, I think, would be good. And and no, it's not it's not good for them to bounce. But also, if you also think about that cultural perspective, right? that kid, kids have an identity. They know who their family is. That's where their identity lies. And so that sometimes if they're going to grandma or they're going to auntie in Texas or Arkansas or wherever, they're family and they, they are part of that, that fabric that helps this child or youth identify. And, the, and I guess the thing I would say is my hope would be that in those situations that if you're the foster parent, you're the foster parent here and you're helping with that handoff, that um, the family in the other state recognizes the importance of that decision or that, that relationship that they had with you and that you get an opportunity to maintain that relationship. Okay. And, and I think that can help bridge, but it, it, I mean, it is, it's not, it's not one of the pretty things in our system. I agree. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if any of, if, if it was uh, some of you folks were on the, the uh, virtual and I talked about the National Model Foster Care Standards that went into effect July 1st. So those came out of the family first legislation and what Congress said to health, federal health and human services, you, we, we need you to develop model foster care standards so that we have some consistency. Because if you know, if you think about in in if you think we're inconsistent in Colorado from county to county, can you imagine what it's like with 50 states? And so what um, what the uh, um, Administration for Children and Families, ACF, who is part of HHS did, is they researched uh, states um, certification requirements. And then from that, again, they, they, they kind of, uh, they put them into um, eight themes that they believed are important to be able to uh, prepare foster parents uh, for foster care to be able to serve the kids in their care. And so um, we had to make, we made some rule changes and those went into effect July 1st. And, that, and, and we talked about that a couple, uh, couple weeks ago. A rule that we did that was related to family first and is related to um, you know, that maximum that, that um, Congress said, the, the maximum capacity in a foster home, we made a rule change in January of 2019. So that was, that was probably the first, that was the first rule change. And we allow families to care for kids up 
for up to six kids, of course, if they have um, if they have space. But we also put in additional criteria because you know two kids can be a whole lot, and can you imagine six? And so we we put criteria in that if a home is going to to have six kids, first of all, it needs to be an experienced foster parent that would can can uh, manage um, the 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 different dynamics of all the kids and that the agency is providing um, more frequent assessment and more frequent support of that foster home so that the foster family is um, supported and that those kids therefore are supported with their needs being met. We have one more rule left um, that is from family first, um, which is in process. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. And that is that um, infants really have no immune system until they're about six months. That's when it really, it, it starts to developing more and kicking in more. And so we're, um, one of the things that we know and We've seen some studies from Children's Hospital, uh, federal government has said this, is that influenza is the most prevalent um, vaccine preventable disease, and as is pertussis, or, uh, which is whooping cough. And so the, what the rule is gonna look like is that anybody that is serving an inf infant up to six months must have the, the home must have um, in the current influenza and the uh, and a pertussis shot. And a pertussis lasts ten years, so uh, it would really mean that annual the annual influenza again if you're serving infants um, six months and under. Okay, next, John. We've we've oh, just oh, linked to the class in the in the chat. We've linked to the rules class that Mary did for us a couple of weeks ago. It's available for on demand viewing. Um, so you, if you want to, you can go back and watch her explain all of the new rules that went into effect. Great. One of the things um, we uh, wanted to talk about too is you saw you saw Jerry Milner, and one of the 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 major themes that came out of um, administration for children and families is this theme or this goal that. Um, foster parents are supports to family and not substitute parents. And so that foster parents are in this unique position that, um, you know, you can, you can build generally, and in most cases, you can build a relationship with the parents or the legal custodians of the kids in your care. And you have so, you can have so much influence because you're not an adversarial part of the case. The county department is you're caring for their kids and, and you're in that unique position where you can help support that family, um, achieve, or achieve permanency and help with the transition to permanency and perhaps have a longer term relationship with the family. But that the role of, of being a caretaker, we, we want it bigger than that. We really want you to help in supporting those families, modeling behavior so that, you, you know, when, when kids go home, um, the, the parents have really learned what you've, what you've helped them with. Um, and, and again, because you're not an adversarial part of that situation. 
And then these are just some of the topics I talked about a couple of weeks ago, again, out of the National Model Foster Care Standards that we need to add to pre-service or core training. Um, anyone who's taken the KIMP training in, in the last year or so would have uh, had some of would have had this in, information or this training, but the, these these are the additional topics and and you heard this theme with with John talking about trauma informed care and and I imagine that all of you have gotten some training in that, but that that is understanding trauma and how it impacts kids and the symptoms that of you know when when it's evidencing itself is so important um and so anyway that's being that is being added into the rule although in the again the camp training it's already been added and then the other one that um i think is especially important is that last one about visitation and again that the importance of maintaining that relationship for kids to relate, uh, maintain relationship with their, their family, their siblings and their, their parents and, you know, other relatives. And, and that's why um, that, that kind of goes back to some of that proximity question that, you know, if we can have families closer together, the case is generally going to um, get resolved and um, the progress made when kids are closer to their families. Okay, and one of the, um, and, and this is kind of, in some of that language, the inappropriately diagnosed, all that, um, that's in family first. And so again, this goes back to why we're going to need more foster homes it's, and the, you know, some of the foster, the experienced foster homes we hope will um, even take on kids with uh, more complexities. But the bottom line, and the bottom line is, Congress said, you can, you know, there needs to be assurances by states that kids are not going to be misdiagnosed. And because of that misdiagnosis, placed in uh, a setting when it, they should have been in a foster care home. And that's going to be part of the assist, uh, assessment process that John's going to talk about. But it's really important that, you know, when kids can, can, um, can live in a foster home, that, they're, that, that they, are, they are there. And then the, and the other one is out of law too, that kids cannot be, or young people cannot be in residential settings or in other settings um, and stay there because there isn't a foster home. And again, that's why, that's another reason we're going to need, we need these homes. We're gonna have fewer kids in residential, but that doesn't mean that we're gonna have fewer kids that need out of home care. We, they're just, they're gonna need to um, be diverted. And, and one thing I was gonna say, a couple of years ago, we did a, just a kind of a, a short little study. We were looking, unfortunately, at the number of kids in a residential setting, RCCF, that were 12 or under. And in reviewing why weren't they moving, why weren't they moving, 25, and we reviewed 100 kids, so I can tell you that. Um, and the and 25 percent of them were remaining in residential care because there weren't any foster homes to serve them. And so that's that we have to get past that. And so this um, this last this last slide here again is we um, have we have been trying to uh, increase our out of placement 
out-of-home out of continuum for a number of years. And so, you know, we have, we have kinship families and there is a need for kinship families. However, kids um, can only be with kinship in non-certified kinship a certain amount of time now, and, or they need to be certified or given custody. So you're not going to see kids placed, um, the county having custody and kids in non-certified care for long periods of time. And we still absolutely need that level of care. We, the next level is kinship foster care and uh, traditional foster care. So it'd be the non-relative foster care. And then the next level, the rules went into place in April, that's therapeutic. So those are where those kids have higher needs. They need services, more services in the home. The family needs more supports. And then the then we have treatment foster care. We've had, um, that's the highest level. And those kids, the, that is the reason they go into those homes is to, is to get treatment. And it's so um, it's, it's pretty intensive. And some of those kids that are in treatment foster care have been diverted from going to residential. It's one of the areas where we really need more homes um, to, to be able to, to work with these kids. One of the things that, and, and you know, um, we all recognize how much you do. And we also recognize that you don't do it for the money. And we also recognize it costs money to raise kids and be able to provide them, give them that normalcy um, that all kids need. And so um, uh, CDHS leadership went to the legislature this year and said, we need to, we need to be able to compensate foster parents um, more fairly. And so, and the legislature um, authorized additional funding for that. And so you will see those three different um, little call outs there. The, the rate for traditional foster care and kinship foster care was changed to an age rate. So that from zero to eight, nope, you can go back one. Anyway, from um, zero to eight uh, is one rate and then nine to 13 and then 14 and older. So that if you have, um, if you have, if you had an eight-year-old in June and that eight-year-old is now nine, you should have seen a new rate um, entered for you. And we, we really hope that it more fairly compensates you for, for your work. Therapeutic foster care has its own rate and treatment foster care has its own rate. Um, one of the things I talked about a couple of weeks ago and John has been talking about today too, is again, that emphasis on trauma-informed care, that is so key to be able to successfully um, you know, meet the needs of kids in care and their cult the cultural responsiveness. And that's, that's why placement with relatives um, is, is very important because it's just, it's lifelong ties that are there. Um, one thing, Somebody had mentioned something, uh, had asked about training. So we have, the state purchased a couple of years ago, something called the Presley Ridge um, curriculum. And so uh, last year we trained six agencies that said they wanted to provide treatment foster care in that, in that training and it's, it's foster parent training. Um, and it, it's uh, targeted 
for therapeutic and treatment foster care. And so that's a, that is a service that we can make available. We have our, our um, learning and development team is developing some kind of a proposal so that we have um, enough people to train it so that, that agencies that want to provide therapeutic foster care are able to train their foster parents and, and maybe able to train other uh, foster parents too, so that we can always have that available for the increase that we anticipate we will need for therapeutic and treatment foster care. And then um, there, I think there was a question about, uh, so there, there's the training part. We are having um, uh, Division of Child Welfare is having three information sessions for counties and child placement agencies who are interested in being approved to provide treatment or therapeutic foster care. And so there's a process that they need to go through. Um, if any of you are, are avid readers of volume seven, if you go to 7.703, you'll see the rules for therapeutic foster care and what agencies need to do to be approved. Um, it, you know, it, it'll be a plan, it has to be a plan. And then if you look at 7.704, there are the rules for or treatment foster care and that's what people need, agencies need to be approved for before they can certify any of their homes as therapeutic or treatment. And so uh, just to throw this out, John and I were talking when we we're um, putting this, the, these screens to, or slides together. And we just wanted to ask, you know, maybe, maybe get um, three or four comments about what would it take, or, you know, what would you need to consider serving a child with more complex needs than the ones you serve now? Good question. You guys want to put some stuff in the chat. Uh, Mary, do you know what agencies were trained? People are asking. Um, you were saying well, some agencies were trained. Yes, I can. Well, I can. Um, let's see. Kairos was trained, but now, now this was now this was specifically for treatment foster care, not for therapeutic. Okay. But, um, but Kairos, um, Smith Agency, Staffy. Um, Savio. I believe Shiloh and I'm, I'm blanking out on one, but um, anyway, that we're, we're doing it, going to do it in a different way now and that we are going to expect some commitment from agencies that do get trained, again, to be willing to train foster parents that aren't necessarily with their agency. Because so we're we saying, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. We just need to, we need to build capacity and, and we don't want it to be, can I, is there room for me? We want there to be adequate yeah. training whenever. Um, people are saying more consistent therapy um, in home or support, getting them to all appointments. Oh. Um, I mean, that's, I know that's yep. a big one. Um, can I ask you, the consistent therapy, is that for the kids or is that help that the family would, that the foster family themselves would like? Oh yeah, let's get some follow-up on that. So it was, uh, it was more consistency with therapy. There was the transportation for appointments. There was we really need more mental health support in home and we'll get that follow-up on whether that is for the caregiver or the child. Um, someone says, I would need to not have a full-time job which that's, 
or and no waiting lists. Um, someone says for kids and kids and parents. Okay. Well, that, I mean, doesn't that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, both. Just, yes, especially with secondary both. trauma. Absolutely. And again, fostersource.org slash therapy. We are sponsoring therapy for you, the caregiver. Um, you can be matched already right now. If one of my team can um, link that in the chat. Someone says being a foster parent is extremely draining emotionally and physically to take on a child with complex needs sounds even more draining, especially if there are other children in the home. Um, someone says more financial support for child care. Oh. More of a voice in the decision-making with the county. You, what? You want to be part of the treatment team? Right? Crazy. A lot more education. Do you mean, so by that, more, um, more per, uh, intensive kinds of, of training? Yeah, probably um, uh, tools for help be, appropriately helping the higher level kids. Yeah. Um, well, I can, I can, go ahead. Someone says trauma-informed therapy professionals in the home. Uh, child find is great, but they lack of a lot of the trauma-informed tactics. I know it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it, it's hard when you're, there's so many systems working in kids' lives, you yeah. know, you've got mental health system and you've got child welfare system, you've got the child care system, you've got the education system. We're not necessarily all coming at this to the same place at the same time. And that, and yeah. uh, I agree with you that that is a challenge. Respite, respite and three times respite and mental health for the whole family. Um, Mary, can you real quick define the difference between therapeutic and treatment foster care? Yeah, um, there may be some similarities. So again, treatment foster care, think about, think about that child or youth that you may have served that ended up going to a re residential care. And you, um, the, the kid, the, the acuity of their mental health, um, emotional um, status is very high right so it's those those are the young people that are can be served in treatment foster care and because they have such intensive needs um, you know they're they're the 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 program is intended to wrap services around the family that there's a clinician in the home working with the family the foster family the youth and whoever the permanent family is. But these kids, they have significant um, men, uh, mental health, behavioral health, emotional health kinds of issues. So uh, because of that, only one or at the max, there could only be two kids in there. Gotcha. Therapeutic foster care is kind of one step down from there. And um, there are, I think, many, many, many kids in our system that, that meet this level. And um, they need they need some. Their acuity is lower than treatment foster care, and it may escalate from times, and then sometimes it's you know it 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 decreases and all that. And so at the you know there's the intent is that there are services wrapped in that home to to bring that intensive the acuity down, and also to help that child or youth make progress and get through some of that trauma. Um, I know, I know that this is, 
this is not a scientific um, explanation, but I, I think those are really the differences. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not convinced, honestly, that uh, and, and in therapeutic, you can serve six kids. Okay. So if you, I mean, I, I think that that would be very difficult for, for most people. And um, you certainly couldn't have kids at the same level um, in, okay. in therapeutic. Someone says, having done therapeutic foster care in Arizona, it's a full-time job that families need to be compensated for, plus more respite. Um, more support with advocating for IEPs and 504s. Some counties really hesitate to approve these kids for the for for to approve these for kids who need them. Is there a particular age therapeutic versus treatment that would be more beneficial, or is it strictly based on needs? It's it's based on acuity level and need. Yes. Okay. Someone says, seems like you couldn't take treatment level if you already have young children in the home. Would that be a safety risk? Um, seems like you'd have to commit to just treatment or not have bio kids in the home. Thoughts? Well, um, you know, I would agree that you would have to be very careful. Um, and our rule doesn't prevent families from having their own children and then somebody who's treatment level. Um, I, we've talked with some agencies in California and actually in, in DC and um, they have programs that are similar to what we have for treatment foster care. And in their programs, they don't allow the family to have um, children living there. And so they tend to be empty nesters or, or people that are had some prior experience in therapeutic levels, you know. Yeah. Uh, but so ours is a, is a bit different, but I, it is, it really is something that you would need to think about. You would need to be thinking about the other thing with treatment foster care is, who, you know, families need to have like a target population. Is this target population going to be somebody with offense specific needs? Mm -hmm. In that case, it might be dicey having your own kids there. Is it somebody with substance abuse needs? Is it, you know, so sure. um, it, I think it depends and it depends on, you know, the ability of, of the, the kids to be kind of, to be self-protective. Someone says we need professionals who are able to put the kids' needs above, above the parents and the relatives, remembering that the kids are most affected by the decisions that are made. Um, since I work with teens who like to quote unquote run, something short of filing a run report would be helpful. A contact in the local police department to help things from escalating would be super helpful. Maybe somebody could come and talk to the kid before they run. I know that's definitely a struggle with a lot of families, isn't it? it I think it is. And yeah. um, in the, you know, it, it, as you mentioned that, um, with the um, treatment foster care, one of the requirements is the agency has to provide 24-hour crisis this management. Um, and, and so in treatment foster care, it, that, that kind of situation um, is something that could be addressed. But I, and I hear your, and I, I hear, and I think the, the 24 crisis, uh, 24 seven crisis management, I think has been an issue for a long, long time. I think counties and CPAs try and address it as best they can. Um, but I, there, there are times that I know that you need more right? because that right. is escalating. Yeah. 
This is, I think this is a valid question. Isn't this essentially creating a residential environment in foster homes? It seems like Family First is asking more of foster parents with less regard for their input. Is are we creating more residential? I, I would hope not because again- No, they're turning what is currently residential. They're just making foster homes residential treatment centers um not, not actually to, segue into the qrt yes profession. yeah i think that's i don't want idea. them to come to the impression that residential is completely gone around we have yeah. only about 15 minutes and lots of questions so yes yeah let me if you don't mind i'll just hit the high points on that and then uh, these have been great questions so i want to get back to that let's see Uh, so with some of the changes that are coming, there's the new Family First funding is for qualified residential treatment programs. That's what you heard me referring to as QRTP. There are some carve-outs uh, populations that have spe uh, specific uh, pro funding available for them, and that's uh, human trafficking survivors or people who are youth who are at risk of that, pregnant and parenting teens. And then also uh, youth who are living independently but need supervision. Um, some of the things that are, with the new level of funding with the qualified residential treatment program, there's requirements there. So it has to have the trauma-informed treatment model we were talking about and 24-7 access to nursing and clinical staff. And it has to go through a state licensed and nationally accredited program, which is pretty intensive and I've heard expensive as well. Um, uh, so they are required to have family involvement during and after care and that sibling connection had to be ma maintained that I mentioned. So there's visitation there and there's aftercare that must uh, occur for at least six months post discharge. Uh, the funding that's going to go away is for those specialized group facilities. Mary was referring to them as the congregate care, specialized group home or group centers, and residential child care facilities that don't become QRTPs are also going to no longer have funding as of yesterday. Um, and going forward, in order for a youth to go into a qualified residential treatment program, that's where they have to go through an independent assessment process. It's called independent assessment because there is a licensed um, mental health professional who would be contracted, not affiliated with the county, who would conduct the independent assessment. And they would also use, as part of this comprehensive psychosocial assessment, they would also complete the child and adolescent needs and strengths tool which not only looks at what are the clinical needs of the youth and family, but also what, what the strengths of the youth and family are too that could be leveraged. I won't go through all the sequence, but you can feel free to review this in your handout. The important thing is from the point of referral, and sometimes a referral is made after a youth has already been placed in a qualified residential treatment program if there's an urgent need. The entire process has to occur within 14 uh, to 15 calendar days two weeks uh, as, a, as a rule. And the independent assessment uh, will culminate in a family permanency team meeting that gets held that uh, there would be any of the assessments 
or stakeholders that are relevant to the youth and family would be incorporated in an interview process prior to having the family permanency team meeting. And then the independent assessment and the qualified individual will make their recommendations for what level of treatment is necessary for the youth at that family permanency team meeting. And then they, they would move forward with the, uh, the, those recommendations being made to the court where the judge would approve or disprove that because of the custody of the county. I, I would say this anecdotally, uh, two things. As of yesterday, um, all of these RCCFs who had made applications to become QRTPs, the ones who had completed their process were approved. And I, I was told that there's 136 uh, QRTP beds that were available as of yesterday. Um, and all of the counties have been trying out this process. Now, some counties may not have had youth who needed to go through this, but others did. And um, about, I think that there were 57% as of the last count that I had heard who had been approved for this qualified residential treatment program level of treatment. Sorry about my dog barking in the background. Uh, the courts have to uh, determine and approve and if the professionals don't agree on the placement, they can voice that and it, it would need to be heard, reheard within uh, 30 days. But it is subject to um, the administrative review uh, as well. And the judicial, par judicial partners have been trained on this process as well, so they know what their role is in uh, the assessment process and what the QRTP requirements are. Uh, to, and that's all been through, headed up and trained through the court improvement uh, uh, program that you see listed here. And then it may not apply to many homes, but just wanted to mention that Family First also builds on the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, long and short is there's two major tribes here in Colorado. They're down in the southwest uh, portion of the state. So the Southern Ute Indian Tribe and Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, and they have been in meetings with the, the uh, state to determine whether they want to participate in the Colorado plan or they could uh, develop in their own plan directly with the federal government because of their status. Uh, I will say that there are some youth, uh, it, and the, the concern here is because there's a disproportionate amount of uh, Alaskan Native and American Indian youth who are in the child welfare system. Um, but I would say this, there are some youth who would not be ICWA eligible, but still would be candidates under Colorado's uh, Family First program to receive services. So we're working uh, with them to make sure that we provide active, active services for them. As part of ICWA, what is relevant that is on this slide is uh, we wanna make sure that the tribes would be included in any of the decisions regarding youth or family and that they're active uh, participants in that assessment process I was just talking about. They should be invited um, and, and can contribute to the interviews to determine what is best for the youth and family. And we wanna make sure that we're recognizing that the tribes and tribal communities are the most valuable resource in supporting these American Indian and Alaskan Native um, 
youth and families, that they should be invited to all of the meetings, you know, participate in the development of the treatment plans and involvement throughout any services that they're receiving. Um, and also be able to develop culturally responsive programs specific to them in their own region. We're linking in the chat to our class about ICWA that's on demand. It's oh, taught beautiful. by Sheldon Spotted Elk and it's amazing. So there's a, that option to learn more about ICWA if you'd like. Yes, and that's, um, that's pretty much what we have involved here. And I'm, I'm sorry for speeding through those, but I wanna make sure there's time for questions. Uh, building on something Mary said, yes, the legislation fully went into effect yesterday, but this is going to be a growing process and there's a lot more that still needs to be built out and that's expected. And Colorado okay. actually is ahead of many states in the process, but uh, this is what we're looking for. I want to say that there are some resources that are in the handouts and there's also a contact information for Mary and I that's available there as well. And uh, these were some of the players who have been very instrumental in helping, not to mention everybody who's had input into this process. Remember and these handouts are in the handouts tab of this class in the classroom, as well as we've got several resources linked there for you already. Um, thank you so much, John. We've learned a lot. Um, it, Mary, is it okay if I keep do, just reading some comments and questions? Yes. So someone says, I think the state is going to need to look at compensating foster families so that one adult can stay home and this would be their full-time job. They need insurance and benefits and regular pay um, that they would get in a normal job. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And that's part, you know, like for some of the rates that were built in, that was the intent to help more adequately support a family to have a state, you know, especially for therapeutic. Okay. And and, uh, and and definitely for treatment. Um, and just so you know, uh, that what we're looking at, and I think I alluded to it, we're looking at some, uh, some other models. Um, they call them uh, professional parenting. I'm not so crazy about that term because I think all foster parents are professionals, but it's that, it's that concept that you're talking about where you're there, you have enough uh, resources that, that you can stay at home and uh, with, with those kids in treatment, foster care especially. So we're looking, okay. we're just looking at what that, um, what that entails. There's statutory things, but um, we're always looking. Um, are the caseworkers and GALs trained in this? We've had a lot of caseworkers and those who have more experience in education make a huge difference in our experience. And to piggyback onto that, I saw that someone had some, said something about the retention of caseworkers. That's they've had three or four within one case and then that makes it difficult um, to keep everybody up to speed. Does that question specify trained in, in which quality? family first, I would guess, just in yeah. all the new available supports and requirements? Yeah, there's been multiple presentations of family first. There's also been, I've conducted uh, six live trainings for the independent assessment process, and the counties went through that as cohort. Okay. Um, and there's also recorded trainings of that that they are all supposed to, to receive. There's also the overviews of Family First, similar to the presentation we just did here that are both available 
uh, from recorded presentations that we've done before and a web-based training that some counties have used as a, a training method for their county department. Someone says to second, really a, oh, go ahead. Uh, there's really a comprehensive website. And I think John, you put that in the, the links, um, but there is a comprehensive website that you could <laughs> you could learn more than you, you ever thought you needed to Wanted know. To, know. <laughs> to second the point about foster parents needing to be a part of the decision-making process, it's all well and good to state that foster parents should not be quote unquote substitute parents and should be a support to the family, but how can that be implemented? How are we shifting the way we are treated by the counties as glorified babysitters rather than being fully knowledgeable about the needs of the children in our care? And to that, I would add even just being informed of what's going on in the case, the history of the case, the reason for past disruptions, that type of thing. Well, um, I think I sent a link uh, for the, the statute that says foster parents have a right. It, it, it's in statute. Okay. They, have, they have a right to that information. Um, so that shouldn't be an issue. And um, let me see if you were, what was the, the other part? What was the first part? Um, just kind of changing how we're viewed in the county. I guess, yeah. Yeah, and you know what? And I think that that's something. And oh, and the ba the babysitter, baby. Yes, glorified babysitters. <laughs> I, I heard, and I have heard that. And you know, I'll say that um, it it seems to really depend on the agency. Sometimes, mm -hmm. and and um, it can depend on the caseworker because it's an area where we have inconsistent practice and and but what I do want to say is um, we have a, a I have a, I host a foster care quarterly for counties and CPAs um, now this last time we didn't do it but one of the things that we have been highlighting are families that have that um, are working with foster families that are working with the biological family and have had some amazing reports or, or stories about how mm -hmm. that's happened. And I, I think it seems like um, sometimes it's the foster parent doing that on their own and not necessarily, um, you know, the, 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 the caseworker is, is that involved, but uh, it is so appreciated. And there have been some amazing stories because, what happens has happened with some of these stories is that again they've maintained that relationship so that the sometimes the kids come and stay with them for the weekend while the parents get a break and that and it's mm -hmm. it helps um strengthen yet more people that are attached to that child absolutely a uh, quick shout out to adams county somebody says it we've fostered for several counties and it's definitely different in each county as far as what you're told or included on um Adams by far has been the best. So well done there. Um, can the links shared in a, be shared in a document after the session ends? So my team, someone's gonna link directly to the handouts tab. That tab will remain there and remain open. This class is being recorded. So within about a week, it'll be available for on-demand viewing and those links will all be there still. Um, let's see, there's a, there's a concern Mary, about be, when we take higher level kids, obviously the the chance that we will have a DNN or a you know we will be accused of something, I think, goes up a bit, and then so there's a concern about how will that be, how will that affect our chances of 
having another child placed or even just how we're viewed then within the same case. Yeah, and and we know that that is a risk actually for any I mean I mean for any child in care um, that that those allegations can happen. Um, happily, our our rate of uh, founded or substantiated is is very low. Folks folks recognize things. You know, I, I whatever you're doing now that has prevented um, allegations. I, I think would probably be it would be the same thing, and and it's about really about really knowing that that child or youth, and about that relationship building. Um, and but but I understand your concerns. So I'm not trying to diminish it. I, I don't have a magic answer. I'm sorry. It does come come with it that concern, doesn't it? Um, I'm going to have Anna from my team pop on here and walk everyone through finding their certificate. Um, John and Mary, if you guys have a couple extra minutes and want to hang out after that, in case any other questions come in, that would be awesome. But to respect everyone's time, let's help everyone get their certificate for those who need to jump off. Hello, Anna. All right. Just a second and I'll pull up the screen. All right, so today's verification code is FAMILY with a capital F, so capital F-A-M-I-L-Y. And when you go back to the screen that you logged in on this morning, can you all see where I'm at? We sure do. Perfect, perfect. All right, so when you scroll down, you should see this webinar and that it has a green check mark because you've attended. And the next thing that you'll see up is the verification code tab where you'll type in family with a capital F and submit the verification code. And you'll see another green check mark. The next thing will be to complete our survey and you'll go through and you fill out all the questions that apply to you. I... These questions really help us um, be sure we're providing what you need. So please do take a few minutes to do this. We would appreciate it. The code is family. We'll post it again in the chat. All right. And then once you've completed your survey, you'll have your third green check mark. And that will open up your, availability, your ability to get your certificate. You'll need to click on the view slash print your certificate and it'll show up in a new screen. It will also save to your history in our learning service. So you'll come back and you'll see on the left side of your screen dashboard and you can go there. And right up at the top, it says transcript and achievements. And I can see here is my certificate for Family First this morning. So it's really, really, really important that you make sure that you have all four of those green check marks. Without actually opening your certificate, it will not download. So once it's downloaded, it stays here forever. It doesn't go anywhere, but you have 
to click the view or print to get it. If you're watching with somebody this morning, family, spouse, friend, please email me. My email is the Anna at fostersource.org. Let me know that you're watching with someone because if you are, I need to make sure that you both are counted in attendance so that you can put in the verification code, take the survey and get your own unique certificate for today's class. Anna, can you show us the handouts tab? Are you still on there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it might have disappeared since you did it already. It might have, but I will find it because I, I just go back. It will pull up again. There we go. There it is. Okay, so once you come here, you just, you'll see the contents tab. And if you scroll over, there's the handouts and we have the PowerPoint slides, the notes for the PowerPoints and all the other handouts for today. And Dan has just linked directly to them. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. In the and comments. So where the, the video from the beginning of class will be. Correct. Yes, we will add that and other links as well. That ends class today. Thank you guys so, so much for coming. We're going to hang out for just a few minutes to try to answer a few more questions. But if you need to go, you are welcome to go now. I hope this was helpful. Thank you.